Good morning. It is so good to be with you all this morning. You'll have to forgive me if I look a little bit dazed this morning. It's because I am. I just got off a plane from uh, Portugal last night, and uh, I was thinking through my head this morning. The last three months, I've been in uh, India, been in uh, Dubai twice, been in Portugal, been in California and Oregon and Minnesota and Missouri and Georgia. So been doing a lot of traveling. And when I walked in, I was a little bit dazed, and I saw this picture, and I thought, oh, somebody died, and they have a picture of this guy who died. And then I realized, oh, that's me. And so I'm here to report to you today, the reports of my demise are slightly exaggerated. I am still alive. Not greatly, but I am still alive. But it is good to be with you. My wife and I and our three incredible sons have uh, served in India for uh, over 30 years now. And God has blessed us and been faithful to us, and we are just honored to be here today. It is the greatest privilege of my life that Jesus called me. When I was 20 years old, I was an alcoholic. Uh, I was, uh, did not come from a Christian family. When I was 20 years old, Jesus met me and changed my life. My uh, mother had left when I was a teenager. My father left soon after my mother did. I was, uh, grew up with a lot of bitterness and anger. And uh, Jesus gave me new life, gave me new hope. And today, my family's in the Lord. My mother's a Sunday school teacher today. My brother's a deacon in a church. My nephew serves in India with us as a missionary. My father pastored the last three years of his life. God just has done miracles, and we are just honored. And this year, I celebrated my 30th wedding anniversary this year. So uh, God specializes in taking broken lives, giving hope, and it's just an honor to be his servant. Thank you for allowing me to be with you today. I'm going to begin reading from Genesis chapter 4. You'll have to forgive me. I've lived up in the hills of India so long that I'm not very good at technology, so I don't have slides or anything. So they came and asked me in between, hey, what are you reading? So we can at least put scriptures on the board. So, so this service is going to be a little bit better. We're going to have scriptures on the board today. So Genesis chapter 4 begin in the middle of verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. This is the sons of Adam and Eve. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the first fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offerings, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So remember this, up until this moment in Scripture, God has given no directions about sacrifice and offerings that, that he expects. So it is not that somehow Cain brought vegetables, and God doesn't like vegetables, and God likes meat, and so he preferred Abel's sacrifice. It was simply that there was something in the offering, in the manner it was given, there was something about it that God saw in the offering of Abel a willing heart, a generous heart, a, saw a loving heart to love him, and something in the offering of Cain that Cain wasn't giving it out of a willing heart. He wasn't giving the best of what he had. So God accepted the offering of Abel, but not of Cain. 
And I can tell you today, whatever you bring to the Lord today, if it's from a generous, willing heart, you don't have to have the best voice. You don't have to be able to sing the best. You don't have to give the biggest offering. But God looks at the heart, and God accepts when it's given from the heart. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Now, you might be confused about why is God asking questions if God knows everything. So what, what's God asking questions for? And you need to understand this theologically. To understand Scripture, you need to know this, that, that God often asks questions, but He never asks a question because He lacks information. Does that make sense? If God's asking a question, it's not because somehow He needs our wisdom and our information so He can know how to process if God is asking a question, he is offering to us an opportunity. Cain, where is your brother? At that moment, Cain has the opportunity of repentance. Cain has the opportunity to make it right. Cain has the opportunity to say, you know what, God? I just got so angry. I was just so frustrated with my brother that I lost my mind. And before I knew it, he was dead. God, forgive me. You see, God is offering him an opportunity, offering him a means of making it right. And yet in that moment, Cain does what we often do, plays dumb, plays ignorance. And the response of Cain, I believe, is, is the root of sin in our lives. It's the beginning of sin. Here's how Cain responded. I don't know replied Cain, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, why are you asking me about Abel? My name's Cain. I mean, why are we doing missions week? Don't you know I, I got issues in my own family? I got stuff going on with my kids. There, there's stuff going on with my family. Why are we here talking about other nations? Haven't you seen the news? Haven't you seen the riots and the school shootings and the, and the addiction problem? Haven't you seen the discord in our nation? We don't have time to think about why aren't we taking care of ourselves? Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, why are we talking about people on that side of town? We got our own issues on this side of town. Why are we talking about my neighbor? I've got issues in my own house. You see, sin at its root, at its core, would lead you to believe that somehow, fundamentally, you are different from the other. Sin would lead you to believe that there is, there's us and them. That there's, there's the people I'm responsible for, and, and then there's the people on the outside, whoever you determine is on the outside. 
whether you determine it by nationality or race or language or, or even neighborhood, however you decide it, the root of sin is the separation that we have with one another. And sin separates us from one another. You might rephrase it, am I responsible for him? Why are you asking me about him? I got enough issues of my own. But we weren't created like that. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the creation narrative, it says over and over, and God created the heavens and the earth, and God created the sun, the moon, the stars. God created the, the separation of the land and water. He created all the birds and all the fish and all the animals and, and all of us. And it says that when God did it over and over, it said it was good. And then God finally looked down at his creation, and he saw it and said, it is very good. Somebody look at your neighbor today and say, you're not just good, you are very good. <laughs> And you are very good because you were created by God. You were created in His image. And in the image of God, we were created good. And the Bible has a statement of this, and it sounds kind of odd to our modern ears, but in, in Genesis 2.25, it says this. And it says that, And Adam and his wife, they were naked and they were unashamed. You know what that means? They had nothing to hide. That means there was absolute, complete transparency between Adam and Eve. That, that Adam wasn't embarrassed with Eve because uh, he forgot to bring the milk home. And now i got to look the other way. <laughs> Adam wasn't embarrassed with Eve because he had thought about another woman that day. Adam and Eve had this relationship. There was no bitterness. There was no jealousy. There was complete generosity. There was complete openness of heart. Adam wanted the best for Eve. Eve wanted the best for Adam. They were in complete, total unity with one another and complete and total unity with God. And when you're like that with complete transparency, man, now that's a beautiful life. Some of you came to second service today because you knew someone in first service that was there that you didn't want to see them. <laughs> like, it's just, it just, I just, you know, like we've had this thing and it's just uncomfortable. So I'm going to come in a little bit late, give them time to leave because, you know, if, if we see each other, you know, we're, we're a little bit ashamed. Man, can you imagine a world where everybody thinks the best of one another? Can you imagine a world where everybody loves one another unconditionally? Where everyone is trying and doing the best for one another, believing the best for one another? Can you imagine a world of complete transparency between us and God? We're not hiding anything from God. We're not hiding anything from God. We are, we are in complete and perfect relationship together. That's what we were created for. And in Genesis 3, it shows us the outflow of this, that Adam and Eve are working in the garden, they're doing their work, and in the evenings, God would come down, and Adam and Eve are walking with God. But you and I were not created like the rest of creation. That there's something different about us. And that is that God did not breathe into trees and animals. He breathed into us, and, and He gave us a part of His essence. 
And you see, the thing about love is love is never coercive. Love is never forced. And because God is love, he did a dangerous thing with us that he did not do with any of the rest of his creation. He gave us this thing called freedom. Everybody say freedom. And freedom requires choices. You see, in the history of humanity, all scientists, all biologists, with all of their searching, nobody has ever found a vegan lion. They haven't been found. There's never been a time that a lion trapped a gazelle. And, I mean, he's getting ready to eat it, and then he looks in the eyes of this little deer. And he says, oh, man, it's so cute. I just... I can't do this anymore. And, 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 and the lion has a moral dilemma, and he says, man, this is just too much. I think I'm going to start eating bark and leaves. People have moral dilemmas. Animals have a nature. Animals can only act according to their nature. They can only eat what they were made to eat. They can only live where they were made to live. Animals have to live according to their nature. But you are not an animal. You're not a tree. Orange trees never grow apples. A flower never produces another kind of flower. They can only produce what they were created to produce. But you and I were created in the image of God, and we have a freedom from God to make choices and determine how we're going to live with one another and with God. We have that choice. And so in the garden, God puts a mechanism of choice. Just, just think of it. Stop trying to think about what kind of fruit was it and think about the trees simply represent the idea that God is giving a choice to the people he's made. So, so, so here's the law. Here's the rule. Follow me. This is your mechanism of love. If you want to love me and follow me, I'm here. But if you want out, this is your way out. And as the enemy does, the enemy always comes to speak. You know, God's not trying to help you. God's trying to keep good things from you. You see, God knows if you eat from that, your life's going to be better. You can live life on your own terms. Those things that they've been telling you not to do, man, that's where life is really found. God's trying to keep you from good. You can be your own God. You can make your own choices. You can live life on your own terms. Why are you following him? And Adam and Eve are seduced, and they eat. And this, to me, is the most haunting verse of Scripture Genesis 3-9, God comes down, as he always does, to walk with the people he created. See, fundamentally, the reason you were created was simply to walk with God and one another. You, you were created for perfect relationships. That, that's why we're here. That's what we were created for. God comes down to walk with them, and, and God comes down, and Adam and Eve aren't there. And God asks a question. Why does God ask questions? To give us opportunity, right? He's not confused about the whereabouts of Adam and Eve. He's not confused about what they've done. But he comes down and hear this, the haunting voice of God, the broken heart of God. Adam, Eve, where are you? Where are you? And where are Adam and Eve? They're hiding they're no longer naked and unashamed. They're, they're hiding. 
We're sinful people. They're separated from God. I want you to notice this. God is not hiding from you, but sin will cause you to hide from God. I used to tell people about the day I found Jesus, and I realized how ridiculous that was. Because Jesus wasn't an old man lost in the woods that I found. <laughs> but when I was lost, he found me. Before I ever thought to look for him, he was already looking for me. While I was hiding, he was calling my name. Where are you? Where are you? I'm right here. Come to me. And God is constantly calling out to us. He calls out to us through friends and neighbors who knows him. He calls out sometimes through a TV program. He calls out through a billboard. God is constantly calling out to us. Where are you? Come back to me. Have life. And I want you to see this. If you're not in right relationship with God, fundamentally, you will not be in right relationship with one another. When your relationship with God starts to break down, every relationship of your life will start to break down. So here is God. You've made your choice. You don't want to be with me. And this isn't an angry, bitter God saying, you messed up, get out of the garden. This is a loving God who will never force you. He will never coerce you. He will never make you be with him. A loving God that says, if you don't want to be with me, I'm not going to hold you here. If you don't want to be in my presence, I will never force you to be with me. And, and they're leaving the garden. The putting out of the garden was Adam and Eve moving out. Actually, the word that is used when it says they put them out of the garden is the same Hebrew word that is used for divorce throughout Scripture. Adam and Eve divorced God. Adam and Eve said, we, we don't want to be in this covenant relationship with you. We want to live life on our own terms. And I want you to see it. Here's the next story of the Bible. People that are not in right relationship with God, immediately they're separated from God. What happens? Brother kills brother. Family starts fighting family. Nation starts fighting nation. People start fighting people. And the history of the Old Testament is the history, the story of people that are not in right relationship with God. And where is God in the middle of all of this? He's right there with them. Adam and Eve are out of the garden, but where is God? He's sitting right there with Cain and Abel. He's calling to them, Cain, where's your brother? The people of Israel, God tried to make them his people. He said, build a tabernacle. I want to go with you. I mean, you don't want to be with me, but I want to be with you. So build me a tabernacle so I can go with you. They get to the promised land. You may not want to be with me, but I want to be with you. Build a temple. And God is right there. The presence of God is with them throughout history. Even though they've rejected him, God has still not rejected them. And then along comes Jesus. That should make you say amen. Because <laughs> all of this sounds really terrible up until now. But then along comes Jesus. And it says that, and the word became flesh, and the Greek word is, and tabernacled among us. And the word became flesh and dwelt, that, that God said, I am here now in flesh and blood to live among you. 
And for 33 years, Jesus tabernacled among us. He tabernacled among people. And then when Jesus died, I, I want you to catch this. As he's dying on the cross, he breathes his last breath. And the first thing that happened after Jesus breathed his last breath, it said that literally the earth started to shake. The temple started to shake. In the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year on behalf of a people who had rejected God. God still made a way for them to come once a year, the high priest. And that veil was there to represent the way to God is closed. But on the day that Jesus died, it said the first thing that happened, the earth began to shake and the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, over 45 foot high. No one was tall enough to tear it, but God opened the way. We, we didn't open the way to his presence. He opened the way through Christ that we can enter in again. He said, come back in the garden. Let's walk together again. You've been made right. There's always this conflict, I can imagine, in the heart of God. You see, there are two principles that are deeply rooted in God. One is love, and love makes you want to show mercy. And then there's righteousness, and righteousness makes you want to bring justice. And God is always working between mercy and justice, right? And in Christ, we have mercy, God loving us enough to send his son, and we have justice, Jesus paying the price to make it right. In Christ, the mercy and the justice of God is fulfilled in Christ. That you have access now to God. He has made a way for us to come. And so around this, immediately, they, they go to Jerusalem. Forty days after the death and resurrection, they go to Jerusalem. Day of Pentecost, they begin to pray. God pours out his spirit. Thousands of people respond. And the early church gathers together, and they start doing things like us. It says that in the early church, they would come together on the first day of the week, and they would pray together. It says daily, from house to house, they would worship together. They studied the words of the apostles. Many of the things we're doing here today, they were doing. But there's something a lot deeper than that that Scripture focuses on, the focus of the early church. Look at Acts chapter 2. These early believers are gathering together. They're coming together under the banner of Christ. And then in verse 44, it said, All the believers were together and had everything. Say with me, everything. everything. Not a portion, not a tithe, not first fruits. Everything. Say with me, everything. everything. They had everything in common. That's heavy, isn't it? No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone. Say with me, anyone. anyone. See, at this point, there's no longer insiders and outsiders. There's no longer us and them. That because we've been bought with the blood of Christ, that, that we have been attached back to one another. One of our great Indian theologians said this, the blood of the covenant is thicker 
than the water of the womb. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. You see, I'm connected to my brother through my mother and my father. I'm connected to my children through my wife. We have, we have a water and blood connection together. But what he's saying is when Jesus gave his blood, his blood attaches us on a level that is probably even deeper than the natural connections we have in this life. In the early church, they started calling each other brother and sister. I got saved in Georgia. I had never been to church. And when I got saved, they, they took me to pastor and they said, hey, this is our pastor, Brother Carol. And I said, you know, uh, I, I don't think I'm old enough to be his brother. He looks a lot older than me. They said, no, 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 it's not a real brother. That's what we call each other. You know, it was kind of a term of endearment. And they introduced me to his wife and it's Sister Carol. And said, so, well, I, I guess you're brothers and sisters now. And so we kind of use it in the South as terms of endearment. But in the Bible, they weren't calling one another brothers and sisters out of just endearment to one another. They were denoting a new type of relationship, that I am now your brother. You are now my sister in Christ. And because we are in Christ and because we are connected, I am my brother's keeper. I got to give everything because we are connected together. And I got to give it to everyone because Jesus gave his life for all that all could turn to him. We're connected. We got brothers and sisters around the world. They don't know yet. They were orphaned, they've been abandoned. Nobody has come along to say, Hey, I know who your father is. I know who your brother is, and his name is Jesus. You, you've been lost, you've been separated, but I'm here to tell you today, you are part of his family. He is calling you back to himself. Come and join the family of God. We are family. Chapter 4, again, the next time the church gets together, here's what the author wants you to know about the early church. All the believers, Acts 4.32, all the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything, say with me everything, everything they had. You know, some of you are really upset because you think, he sounds like a communist. Get mad at Jesus, not me. <laughs> I don't know nothing about political systems. I just know what Jesus said. And, and if you love your country more than Jesus, you got a problem. I can say that because I'm leaving in just a little bit. <laughs> We're part of his kingdom. I was telling in early service, I do a lot of preaching on college campuses. I go to Chi Alpha groups and preach a lot. And I've noticed this. When you go into a dorm, if you open the refrigerator in the dorm, you, you can't just take what's inside. Because everything inside the refrigerator has somebody's name on it. Right? Because i got to determine what's mine and what's yours. I even saw a couple of months ago, I was in a Chi Alpha, and I opened it, and somebody had put a line on a gallon of milk and wrote a date on it. Because they wanted to know if somebody took a little bit of my milk. So, so I got a line on it, I got a date on it, I got my name on it, this is Joe's, and this is where it was at at 11.13 the last time I drank it, and I want to know if anybody's been touching my milk. 
You know, sometimes when you're in college, your mama bakes you something and sends it to you. And the first thing you do is not eat it. The first thing you do is write your name on it and hide it. Because if my friends see it, my friends are going to eat half of it, and I'm not going to get any of it. So i got to hide it and wake up at odd times to eat it when nobody sees me eating it. And that's the only way you can get some of it. But in my house, nobody gets to write their name on the milk in my house. In my house, there has never been a day that one person in my house went hungry. Never been a day. There's been a day that all of us went to bed hungry, but there's never been a day that one person went to bed hungry because we're a family. We share what we have. We have everything in common. I, I, I get messed up all the time because I got three sons who have, wear the same size clothes and shoes that I do. So all the time I go to put my shoes on and they're gone. I'll ask my son, Hey, do you need new shoes? No. You know why he doesn't need new shoes? Because he's taking my shoes. And so i got to go buy new shoes because he don't want new shoes because he's wearing my shoes. And as soon as I buy new shoes, he's wearing no shoes. Because in my house, we are a family and we share everything. Say with me, everything. We share everything we have. There'll never be a time that one person in my house is in debt, that one person in my house, if we go down, we go down together because we're the family of God and we share everything we have. And now you have a people gathered together in Christ and they're looking around them and they're saying, hey, we are the people of God and I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper and there'll never be a time that one of us is in need. There may be a time all of us are in need, but there'll be never be a time that one of us is in need because I am my brother's keeper I am responsible for those around me how did this happen verse 33 with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work among them and you'll notice it stops there. God's grace was so powerfully among them all, it, it gives you time to kind of reflect and think a moment. God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all, what would you think was happening? Blind eyes are open. The lame are walking. Multitudes are being fed. The dead are being raised. God's grace was so powerfully at work among them, verse 34, that there were no needy persons among them. Can you imagine a day that the grace of God was so powerfully at work in Greater Life Church that it could be said there was not one needy person among them? Because we're family. We share what we have. We take care of one another. Can you imagine a moment that we loved our city so much that it could be said, in the city of Charlotte, there was not one needy person among them. Can you imagine a people that were so connected to God and one another that you could say, in the world, there was not a person without the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are still 
42% of the people, groups, and planet Earth have yet to be engaged with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not responsible for them. i got to take care of me, my family, my city, my country. Every night around the world, hundreds of millions of children go to bed hungry while we're well-fed. And it doesn't haunt us. Why? Because I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not responsible. I can just turn the channel. When you understand this, when you were reconciled to God, reconciliation to God is not so the purpose so that I can go to heaven. Being reconciled to God means that I'm reconciled to the world. And now I live my life different in this world. Heaven is the end, but today, right now, is living for Jesus in this world. If you were saved to go to heaven, God would have taken you the day he saved you. But how many of you know you're still here? Some of you may be dreaming, but most of you are still here. And you're here because God wants you to join with him in his reconciliation project to the world. And being made right with God means I'm made right with my neighbor. You see, if I'm not in right relationship with God, I am not going to be in right relationship with my neighbor. But if I am in right relationship with God, that should reflect out in being in right relationship with you. And if I hate my neighbor, if I hate the other, if I hate the other nation, then I would doubt that I've actually been reconciled to God. That's what the Bible says. How can anybody say they love God and hate their neighbor? It's because of the outflow of that that if I'm reconciled to God, that means I have a heart change to be reconciled to my neighbor. And it doesn't matter what language my neighbor speaks, what race my neighbor is from, what kind of passport my neighbor holds, that I'm reconciled to them, I'm right with them because I'm right with God. But if I'm not right with God, I'm not going to be right with them. Hatred still dwells. There's still others in my life. About a couple of years ago, how many of you remember when Afghanistan, we're pulling out of Afghanistan? Man, there were images on TV of literally people so desperate to escape. They're, they're literally holding on to planes as planes are taken off. Man, if you can change the channel without that haunting you, then uh, something's wrong. Something's wrong. I mean... Those things should haunt us. And in those moments, I have to ask myself, am I my brother's keeper? Am I Afghanistan's keeper? I'm, I've never been there. But Jesus said, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me, now I'm sending you. And that means that I walk in the authority of Christ, not just for my sons and my wife. I walk in the authority of Christ for all of heaven and all of earth. And I'm responsible. So what am I going to do about it? So I saw it happen and I started to pray. And I just felt like in that moment, sometimes all I can do is pray. Sometimes all I can do is hope. But I always pray and I always hope. And if God speaks, and then I act. So I started praying as I saw this. God, I, I, and I felt like God speaking to me. There's something to do. 
So the next day, I called one of our teams in India, and I said, man, I don't know what to do. I, I see this stuff happening, and God just put it on my heart. We need to do something. And my friend told me, he said, that's amazing. I met an Afghan refugee on the street today. This was in Mumbai, India. I said, well, great, introduce me. So we went, and we talked to him, and we found out there were 13,000 Afghan refugees in India. So we got together, one of our churches, Pastor Koshi Baby, who uh, is one of the people you support, he opened his church up for us. We brought in 500 heads of household from Afghan families into his church. And we shared with them, we prayed for them, we told them, hey, we're sorry for your suffering, we're here for you, we want to help you, Let, let's see how we can start helping and serving you in this time. And we know now today there are over a thousand Afghan believers in India today. It's just simply determining I'm part of the solution. I can't turn my eye. I'm my brother's keeper. When I was living in Laos, I lived for uh, 15 years in India. I lived for six years in Laos, and then I came back to India after that. And I've been back in India ever since. But when I was in Laos, I had a neighbor who was sick. And I started noticing my neighbors going down. I finally I took my neighbor to the doctor and the doctors told me he needed treatment. And where we live in Laos, it's just, I mean, it's barely a hospital there. They said, we don't have treatment. You'd have to take him to Thailand. Thailand's 12 hours away. The doctor said it's going to cost at least $20,000 to start the treatment. So I told my neighbor, I said, man, I, I'd love to help, but I, I don't have that kind of money. So uh, we, we get home. He lived just, we lived on a little dirt lane he lived in a little thatch hut across from me on this little dirt lane. And we drive in, and I tell him, I said, I'm just so sorry I can't help you, but, but I know Jesus. He's a, he was a staunch Buddhist. And I said, and I believe Jesus healed. So, so I can't do anything else, but I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you that Jesus is going to heal you. That night, I got ready to go to bed, and I, and I start to pray, God, would you please heal my neighbor, Mr. Ut? And when I said that, I felt the Spirit of God speak to me. What would you do if he was your father? What would you do if he's your father? And I started running through scenarios in my head, and I said, I guess first thing, I'd max my credit card out. And after I'd done that, I'd take a loan. And, and if I did all that, and still, I guess I'd mortgage my house if I had one, and then I'd sell my car if I had one. I'd, I, I'd do whatever, but if there's any possibility, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do everything I could for my father. How many of you would go into debt for your kids? <laughs> How many of you would go into debt for your family? You'd say, man, we're, we're going we're gonna to do this if it costs us everything. If we live on the streets because of this, we're going to do what we got to do because we love them. I am my father's keeper. And so I said, I guess, God, I'd do whatever I had to do. And I felt like the Spirit speak to me and said, treat him like he's your father. So the next day, I got up, I go back to his house, and I said, Mr. Owen, I didn't treat you right yesterday. I treated you like I would a stranger, and you're not a stranger. You're family. And I wouldn't let my family die, and I'm not going to let you die. So, so get ready. We're going to Thailand this week. So we get in the car and we drive to Thailand. He started on dialysis. He started on treatment. We stayed there for a week. And after a week, they said, well, he'll have to come back every week for the rest of his life. If he misses a week, he's going to die. He's got to come back every week for the rest of his life. 
So that started the process. Either me or one of our team members, every month we'd take him to Thailand. We'd spend a few days down there in Thailand, and we'd bring him back. And I maxed out all my credit cards. I, I took loans from people. I, I put myself in debt. But the good story is, 12 years later, he's still alive today. But on top of that, that that's good enough. But on top of that, the day I'm leaving Laos, two years after we started this, I felt like the Lord leading us to go back to India. And so I go to my neighbor's house, and I sit with him, and I tell him, hey, I'm leaving, but our team is still here. They're going to help you. They're going to get you to the hospital. They have my credit card. We're going to keep this thing going. We're going to make sure you're taken care of. The next morning, I'm getting in my truck. We're late for the airport. I'm getting in my truck, and a little boy from the village came and grabbed my shirt and said, hey, Mr. Oat wants to talk to you one more time before you leave. And so, so I go run into his house. I'm late. I'm kind of like, you know, you, know you, you get a little bit disturbed. I was like, what, what, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And he sat up in his bed and said, before you leave, I just want to say this to you. He said, you are my family. You are my son. And because you're family, your God is my God. Would you pray with me? I want to follow Jesus. His wife was in the kitchen. She jumped out of the kitchen, and she said, you're my son too. I want to also follow Jesus. And today, there's a church that meets in their home, and people are finding Jesus because of one simple idea, to treat the world like family. Now, now your retort to that may be this. You just can't do that for everybody. You can only get so many credit cards. You can only take so many loans. I can only mortgage my house a few times. I just can't do that for everybody. My retort to you is start with somebody. Start somewhere. Look around you and ask the Lord, God, who needs family in my life? Who needs a brother in my life? Who needs a father in my life? Who can I treat like family? Who can I treat with the grace of God? And I want to tell you this, this will never come naturally to your human spirit. Your human spirit will always lead you to think of what's mine and what's yours, to think who's in and who's out. It is only the grace of God powerfully at work in our hearts that can so redeem us and so transform us that there are never any others in our life. Everybody in our life is family who needs to be treated that we would say, everything I have, I am sharing, that everybody can have an equal opportunity to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? And just lift both your hands as a sign of surrender to the Lord. What you're saying is, in this moment, everything I have, everything, everything, all my time, all my dreams, all my energy, all my resources, everything I have belongs to you, Lord Jesus. It's not my house. It's not my car. It's not my job. It's not my opportunities. God, you are my Lord, and you have reconciled me to yourself. And God, I just pray that you would help me through your eyes to be reconciled to the world around me. Right now, I lay down my idols. God, if there's any people that I have looked at as another, God, forgive me and give me your grace and change my heart. Change my heart. Lord, in you, I don't have enemies. I don't have strangers. Lord, in you, I embrace the world around me. Thank you, Lord, for making me right with you. 
Now, God, would you make me right with my neighbor? God, would you speak to our hearts today about what we need to do to live out this reconciliation with the world? What do we need to give? How do we need to pray? Where do we need to go? Who do we need to embrace? God, help us to live it out. Show us people in our neighborhood. God, I pray this week that everyone in this room would have somebody that you would open their eyes to this week, of somebody that they can embrace as you have embraced us. And God, show us nations. Show us peoples. God, show us our part of how we can join with you for your kingdom purpose. Amen. Let's thank Joseph for a powerful word. Amen.